wrestling wars against terrible Turks, offensive Ottomans, and a chance at the American Catches Catch Can title. Today we continue the story of Tom Jenkins. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves, pro wrestling history nerds. Well, here I am. Well, there you are. You plural, you singular, you collective. Who am I? What am I talking about? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter. I am a pro wrestling booker. But more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd. And I'm using the term nerd singular because it's just me today. It's just going to be me for a little while. So hopefully you like me, you like my research, you like the way I present it, because this is going to be the show for a bit as we get back into the world of Tom Jenkins and wrestling in the early 1900s. And for those of you who haven't been paying attention to the most recent series, I've been going back and revisiting the pioneer era of pro wrestling, these eras that we covered in the early days of the show, but I'm just able to do better research now, I know how to present it better, and I didn't want to revisit things note for note. So we covered Clarence Whistler instead of William Muldoon, we covered early promoters, and we're bringing up now Tom Jenkins, who is not a well-known name for the casual history fans. Whenever this era comes up, people think Gotch and Hackenschmidt because they were the two titans. Their matches set the standard for what big pro wrestling rivalries were. It ruined the image of pro wrestling as a legitimate sport. We covered that story already. But Tom Jenkins, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many people, is Gotch's true rival. Jenkins was the biggest star in America as Gotch was starting to come up. He was in that title mix constantly with Dan McLeod, Frank Gotch. You know, Tom Jenkins was right there at the top. He was the best in the world at a certain point in the style of wrestling that he competed in. And he's very important. You, you really can't remove him without the foundation of wrestling in the 20th century to essentially collapse. So that's why we're doing such a deep dive into his life, into his career, into his context in American sports at the time. And for those of you who are just as big a history nerd as I am, you might be, when you listen to this, you might go, hey, wait a minute, according to this book, I thought this happened. Or, hey, according to what I heard from this guy in a shoot interview talking about a story he heard from his trainer, it went down this way. And what I am doing is I go through the newspaper archives, I read all the books, and I try to put everything together into a coherent narrative in the best way I can, in the way that makes the most sense to me. Because when you look at old sports papers, sometimes they would be covered by people who didn't even know much about wrestling. Or they had to leave to get on a train and just assumed this guy won because he was doing so well. So you can see the same match covered by three papers and get three different stories. And sometimes you don't even get the names right. I don't know if that was just dismissiveness. I don't know if that was bad editing. I don't know if they took their handwritten notes and set it to the typesetter and it was not very clear what word was what, so they just did the best they could before setting it to print. I can't say I wasn't there, but kind of want to lay out the groundwork for how I put the story together. 
for the sake of clarity, because history is interpretation. History is research and trying to create a narrative out of it that makes the most sense to the storyteller himself, himself, of course, being me. So where we left off in the last episode was the end of 1899, the beginning of the year 1900, a new century dawning, and Tom Jenkins was once again going at it with another terrible Turk, another Ottoman import, if you will, part of that wave of Turkish wrestlers that went from the Ottoman Empire to Paris, sometimes to England first, and then for tours in the United States, all started by Yusuf Ismail. We covered that both in Yusuf's episode and in the previous episode. So you kind of see how the match with Tom Jenkins came together, what its purpose was, why it happened the way it happened to make the most amount of money for everyone involved. And at the end of 1899, he had that match with Kara Osman. Osman, of course, got hurt in a weird way. They had a rematch on February 8th, 1900. And you'd think this would be a barn burner. You'd think that they would make sure to do a great worked match entertain everybody, make up for the previous uh, whoopsie-doodle of, of an end, but alas, that was not the case. It was, as the Wilkes-Barre Weekly Times called, a slow and long-drawn-out affair. The Turk yielded the battle to save himself a throw. So, first time they had a match, bad injury, anticlimactic, nobody left happy. Second time around, bad match, bad finish, nobody left happy. So really not great for business, both for the sport itself or for the men involved. In the February 12th Buffalo Courier article, Wrestling Fizzle at Cleveland, which claimed that, quote, for some time past, the wrestling game, which was once very popular in America, has been dead in nearly every city in the United States. Which, as you've kind of picked up from the show, the post-Muldoon-Lewis pre-Gotch Hackenschmidt years were a lot like the post-Gotch Hackenschmidt pre-Ed Lewis Joe Stetcher years where the sport sags and is declared nearly dead if not outright so. So every time you have those big swells of popularity it's going to go away and everybody's like oh it's wrestling is dead. You still see that today. You have that in the post-Hogan Andre Macho Man years. You had that after the Attitude Era it just kind of everything comes and goes. Everything is cyclical. Stars rise, stars fade, new stars rise up, replacing them. Circle of life, sing the song in your head. But back to the article. The paper claimed that Osmond gave up after an hour of wrestling, despite looking like he could easily continue. Quote, the managers of the affair and the audience were equally disgusted. End quote. Osmond claimed that Jenkins was fouling him, but calling to the ref about being fouled, and that Jenkins' friends and fans, quote, had the audience worked up to a pitch where trouble would easily have resulted. A very gentlemanly way to say that a riot was about to break out. At several points, the Turk was choking him and, quote, there were cries for Jenkins to go at him, hand him one, etc., and that Jenkins did openly give the dusky skin on the Turk's neck a squeeze that was far from gentle, end quote. Osmond's corner gave up when Jenkins wasn't disqualified. So it paints a slightly different picture than some of the earlier articles. After the match, the committee refused to give Osmond his loser's pay and similarly didn't hand over the 60% winner's purse to Jenkins. 
the promoters wanted a rematch with a single fall to determine the winner and the purse, Osmond's manager stated that the committee had robbed him and most likely gave Jenkins his money in secret, and that they should donate all the money to a local charity because, quote, they are robbing the public by keeping any of the receipts. The promoters were very grouchy about this accusation, but insisted that no money will change hands without another match. Imagine if this happened today. Imagine what would be happening on Twitter, if Twitter still exists by the time this podcast even drops. Imagine the social media outrage. Imagine how badly this would go for everyone involved, the promoter especially. But they had that power, and I can understand being disgusted by the outcome, being extra pissed because this was the second attempt to put that match together with high expectations. But a deal is a deal. But hey, there's no sports unions, not a lot of accountability, so it does kind of go back to the old-timey, what the hell are you going to do about it? July 11, 1900, from the Wisconsin Stevens Point Journal article, Why Wrestling Has Declined in America. It was lamenting the drop in both the quality of wrestling and the quantity of fans. How unathletic freak shows like The Terrible Turk had ruined wrestling, as has the drift from Greco-Roman wrestling. Describing wrestlers of the day as, quote, Some are capable men, enthusiastic men who glory in their strength and prowess. But they are illy advised, or they would abandon further attempts to become as famous as Strangler Lewis and Muldoon the Great. So, again, we're having kind of that Jim Cornette-ish, you know, all these darn kids are killing the business with their catch-as-catch-can and their, their fancy submission holds and attacking below the waist. So... Again, we kind of have the, as the sport is resurging, becoming very much catch-as-catch-can exclusive, you have the old Greco-Roman guys, you know, claiming cultural foul because what they were into wasn't it anymore. It's a lot like the Grandpa Simpson quote. I used to be with it, but then they changed what it was. Now what I'm with isn't it anymore, and what's it seems weird and scary. So that definitely sums up their view of the wrestling business as it was evolving. From the December 10th, 1900 Buffalo Morning Express, gushing that Buffalo might host a match between French Greco-Roman legend Paul Pons and Tom Jenkins. Again, a claim that wrestling wasn't very hot at the time, describing Buffalo, quote, was once a great wrestling center. That was before the days of boxing. The day before, the Buffalo Courier had a different take on things. Quote, wrestling fakers preparing to trim New Yorkers. Neither would meet Jenkins. The article covers a match set between Rober and Paul Pons. Quote, another stupendous fake to gull the public. Both Rober and Pons should be chased off to Hong Kong or some other distant port. Neither of them would dare take a chance and wrestle a square match. Same paper, same page. Different article on wrestling claimed that, quote, he, meaning Jenkins, has turned down several Eastern sharpers and con men who tried to bring him to New York to fake with Rober and Pons. Jenkins is on the square and will have nothing to do with these sure thing grifters. What a page to unpack. We have claims of... Paul Pons coming to work matches, which was probably true. Very few people would get on a boat and sail to America on financial speculation for 
their future. You don't, as a professional athlete, come to set a tour unless you really know what your plan is. Sometimes that plan is, I am an absolutely un unbeatable athlete, the, the Hackenschmidt plan. But most people saw a tour of the US as a way to pad your bank account. You could sail into the United States and tell any old bullshit story you liked. No way to fact check it. It makes great advertising. Everybody wants to see a giant foreign menace against the homegrown American boys. It also sets up matches and face-offs like, hey, here is the hot, young, and more importantly, American wrestler doing the American style of wrestling, which was that hybrid catch-as-catch-can, against the old, stodgy, European, Greco-Roman style of a man of the past, a style of the past. American wrestling is the future. America is the future. So... It throws a lot of dirt onto the Greco-Roman wrestling, which, to be fair, wasn't a lot of fun to watch. Catch as catch can was a lot more fun to watch. And it creates just everything in both emotional and political and narrative storytelling to move tickets. And so long as your pride doesn't get in the way and makes you want to be a legitimate athlete as opposed to a successful athlete, well, there's a lot of money to be made. The Paul Pons versus Ernst Rober match happened on February 7th, 1901 at Madison Square Garden. It went to a draw when it was stopped by the police at midnight. Most people assumed it was a hippodrome. The Buffalo Review claimed that, quote, One thing which makes the match suspicious is the fact that the big bettors did not place any money on the results. So, yeah, the midnight draw is one of the oldest tricks in the book to keep anyone from having to lose when it's two big names and a lot on the line. It's just, hey, we're wrestling indoors, so now we have an excuse for when to call it quits. Neither man really wins, but no, neither man really loses. And guess what, fuckers? No refunds at the box office. And the fact that, yeah, neither side had a big backer who was putting down huge amounts of money, because that was how the business was done. You had your backer. They would pay for your training camp. They would bring you to the place. They would put $2,000 down on you winning because they are that certain of you, either because you are the superior athlete in a legitimate sport or because they know the fix is in and they know which way the wind is blowing and how to make the most money off of the marks. With the lack of that, it seems like a box office swindle move. Again, could be wrong, but that's what it feels to me. But what this did do was elevate Ernst Rober back up a few notches. Keep in mind, he'd been knocked down pretty low when he lost his title to Evan the Strangler Lewis. And he'd been billing himself as the Greco-Roman champion of America. Everybody's got to have a title. Everybody gets to wave their participation trophy in the face of the press to make them look like a much bigger draw. And hey, perception is reality. If it, if it works it works. If it puts butts in seats, it puts butts in seats. If it makes you a star, then hell yeah, you're the champion. That's pro wrestling. And it set up a match with Jenkins. On April 9th, the Fall River Globe covered Jenkins versus Rober in St. Louis the previous evening, so this did happen on April 8th. Two out of three falls. The first under catch-as-catch-can rules, the second under Greco-Roman rules, 
and if a third was needed, whomever won the fastest match gets to decide the rules for the final. Convoluted, but it works, and it also works because it incentivizes a faster win, or at least creates the illusion of wanting somebody to win faster. So it really does set up a worked shoot looking style match where, hey, you know, that guy won a fast fall because he really wanted it to set the tone for the third one. A lot of layers to it, both as a uh, narrative and a sports narrative. Really good booking, in my opinion. The first, as I said, was Catch as Catch Can, won by Jenkins in 25 minutes, 30 seconds. The second, Greco-Roman, won by Rober in 30 minutes and 40 seconds. And the third, because hey, it was only 25 minutes and 30 seconds, Jenkins picked Catch as Catch Can and won in 11 minutes, 45 seconds. 5,000 people showed up to watch this go down, despite the match not even starting until 10 p.m. And keep in mind that this was on a Monday. Don't these people have jobs? <laughs> so it was great because they didn't pull any bullshit. They built up Rober with pawns to make him look like a legitimate threat against anybody in the world, and then had Jenkins beat him clean. That's always important when you're not pissing off the audience and building up a star. Everybody saw Jenkins as the future of the sport. So when you have a kind of like a mid-card, somewhat old-timer, uh, there's on hand to put somebody over. And again, I'm assuming this one is a work just based on the narrative structure to it. And that makes Jenkins look like a million bucks. True, at the expense of Rober, but I assume he was well compensated financially. And now we're going to talk about another very important person, not just for this story, but in wrestling history and wrestling at that time. Because on March 28th, 1901, Dan McLeod defeated Mort Henderson in a handicap match. That's right, Mort Henderson, the future masked marvel, whom you might remember from our uh, episode about the 1915 International Tournament, but no, we are not here to talk about the Mass Marvel, even though I always do. Dan McLeod. Dan McLeod was more or less discovered by Parson Davies in San Francisco. You can hear about that in our Parson Davies episodes. He put on a great series with Strangler Lewis in the Pacific Northwest. He became a star in his own right. And if you go way back to listen to our episode about Frank Gotch, it was Dan McLeod who at first showed up to the carnival where Gotch was working, claimed to just be a furniture mover from Omaha or something like that, beat the brakes off of Gotch, but was so impressed by him that he introduced Gotch to Farmer Burns. The rest is history. But at the time, Dan McLeod was a top guy. He was one of the more well-known and well-accomplished wrestlers of the day. But in the meantime, on May 1st, Jenkins and his upcoming opponent, Narula Hassan, another giant Turkish import who was also part of the Turkish invasion of Paris, were training by taking on all comers at rival playhouses. According to the Buffalo Inquirer, quote, considerable betting has been made on the match, the paper reported. Quote, Dick Bernard, a brother of the well-known comedian, has already wagered $500 on the result. The same paper also published, quote, Tom Jenkins' new hold. Cleveland man's brains may yet give him victory over Narula. 
The article discusses Jenkins' double armbar and claims that Jenkins is as smart as he is strong, and that should give him equal footing against the giant Turk. So, yeah, I mean, that is important. The idea of that scientific wrestler, the idea of a man who's a strategist, a man who's not just physically strong and physically capable, but has tricks after tricks after tricks. And that is true in legitimate grappling. If you watch a jiu-jitsu match or an MMA match, you will see guys who are like, cool, I'm gonna try to go for this arm bar, and I know they're gonna defend the arm bar, so from there I switch to my triangle choke. And if they're able to power out of that, I always make sure to keep an eye on that leg so I can hook behind the knee and pivot out and go for a knee bar. It's combinations, it's the same thing with boxing. You know, the best boxers aren't the, just the big strong guys that go brawl, they're the guys with strategy, with plans, with combinations and feints. It's everything is very complicated in combat sports like it is in all sports, like it is in life. So they're really hyping him up as, again, kind of the intellectual wrestler against the big brutish Turk because we have yet to see the diminished returns phase of the Turkish invasion just yet. These were still big, terrifying foreign menaces who have like the rumors of you know, defeating 400 men in a country you've never heard of and can lift a cow over their head and then rip it in half like a phone book. Even though ripping a phone book in half seems very difficult unto itself, but who am I to judge the strength of other men? Buffalo News on May 6th discusses the weight difference between the men and makes a dumb joke a century before I assumed it was invented. Quote, Jenkins weighed 190 pounds and Narula tips the scale at the light and air figure of 375 pounds. That will be great wrestling. Not. So yeah, they're going full uh, Wayne's World with uh, their, their comparison on the weight class there. And then on May 7th, 1901, a weird notice in the Buffalo News. Narula, the 375-pound midget, and Tom Jenkins wrestle tonight in New York. Alongside the Turk, Jenkins looks like a pill besides a football. Heck of a comparison. <laughs> the Brooklyn Daily Eagle covered the match the following day. Narula smothers Jenkins. Championship wrestling match at Madison Square Garden, an easy victory for the Pagan. Oh boy. Quote, A more one-sided championship contest could hardly be imagined. This was not because Narula, the winner, outclassed his man so much, but on account of the uneven conditions under which the two men met. In other words, the size difference mattered. Quote, Narula moved with a deliberateness that was in keeping with his size. He wore Jenkins out by laying on him and driving the wind out of him, until the American lost all strength and sank helpless to the mat, his face black and blue. All the science of a combined army of wrestlers could not have won last night's match for Jenkins. So this begs the question, work or shoot? Is this a match where Jenkins went into it knowing he was so overmatched on paper that it wouldn't make a lot of sense for him to win and therefore it was about the money? You know, when, you, when you're getting towards the top, you're either A, promised bigger opportunities, promised more money, promised both, in order to bolster whoever it is you're putting over, especially when you're being put over clean. And when you're wrestling somebody that big and they wear you down, 
Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that you lose. There, there really were hyping the size difference coming into things. So if Jenkins had pulled off like a miraculous end of the movie, uh, sweep the leg Johnny type of finish, well, I don't know if a lot of people would have bought it. Uh, the betting odds might have been a little too steep. It might have been a situation where there's just so many angles for why it could have been one way or the other because it also could have been a shoot. Not all of the Ottoman wrestlers were keen on the idea of working matches. That's why with Yusuf Ismail, they clearly had people putting him over, but it didn't feel like he knew that. So at the end, when Evan Lewis kind of pulled a fast one with him and walked away with all, most of the money, well, guess what? I don't feel like he was uh, too appreciative of it because I feel like he probably wasn't in on the scheme, wasn't in on the scam, wasn't in on the joke, and a lot of the Ottoman wrestlers were in the same boat. Hopefully not the same boat as Yusuf Ismail since that sank to the bottom of the ocean, but they were coming over here to win legitimate competitions and a lot of times promoters would find guys who would be like, cool, I need you to put him over and we'll make a bunch of money that way. Uh, kind of a hard person to shoot on if you're going to try to uh, pull a Stanislaw Zabisco type of move. So yeah, it could have been a work, could have been a shoot. Either way, the size difference kind of negates any setbacks to Jenkins' career either way. May 17th, 1901, an advertisement in the Boston Post about a mile a minute Murphy, the world's most daring bicyclist involved in a race in a variety show. Tom Jenkins wrestles all comers. Joe Welch leads a big variety bill. 40 burlesquers to charm you from 1 to 11 p.m., which means Tom Jenkins was doing that carnival style challenge which became prevalent in the early 1900s, just as it was picking up popularity in the late 1800s as wrestling moved from a circus tent to the burlesque houses, the vaudeville halls, these type of places where you had the open challenge. The people would give their name to the, the management, and if you could last 15 minutes with this man, you would win $25. And they would do matinees. I mean, you just heard the timestamp. That was from 11 to 1 p.m. It was a it was an afternoon type of show mixed in with comedians and jugglers and various other acts because, you know, a wrestling match, if it's 15 minutes, isn't exactly worth the 50 cents you paid for it. So it was just everything stacked together and wrestling was part of that performance as it would be with many wrestlers and many buildings for the for the foreseeable future. So it was a great way to make money. It was a great way to get renown. It was a great way to find opponents that you could work with. And it was a great way to set up further business because you could have a wrestler come in and last the full 15 minutes. And then you say, well, under normal circumstances with a match to the finish, I would have won that. And if everybody comes back on Friday and brings another 50 cents, by gosh, you can see that happen. So it was a money-making opportunity at every turn. November 1st, 1901, Dan McLeod, the famous little Scotch wrestler who is really a British Columbian, most likely, and an ironclad agreement to wrestle Tom Jenkins for the World Championship, according to the Vancouver province. The match is to be managed by the Cleveland Athletic Club. Winner gets 50% of the house, with a purse of $200 divided 75-25 between winner and loser. 
both men have put down the $250 bond guaranteeing their appearance. Um, again, if you're kind of newer to the show, newer to the concepts, a lot of times, in fact, most times with big matches for them to be set, the, the competitors, the wrestlers, their teams would have to put down a forfeiture, put down $200, $500, whatever, to guarantee this person would show up. So that was something that had to be put down. And then if the other person didn't show up, well, your money is gone and goes to the other guy for making the effort to get to the building. Friday, November 1st, 1901, from the Buffalo Times, with Will the Jenkins McLeod match be on the square? Quote, Jenkins was accused of trying to arrange a fake with McLeod, and it was stated that this is the reason Jenkins failed to meet McLeod here. No denial of this statement was made by Jenkins or his manager. Consequently, the public is left to believe that there was foundation for the accusation. And I am as shocked as you are to know that there was an accusation of fixing a wrestling match in this time. Heck, I would be shocked if I heard about it today. So you would see this a lot where the accusations of faking matches was very public. It was a very big concern because most of the money made on wrestling was from the gambling aspect. So you did have to make it as real as possible if it wasn't actually real. Because keep in mind, there were still plenty of shoot matches, plenty of legitimate competition. But usually when you got to the height of where real money was going to be made, well, under those circumstances, there were very few things left up to chance. And I did love the, oh, and he didn't deny it, as though Tom Jenkins was going to put out a presser saying, I do not fake matches. I am a legitimate professional wrestler. I would never do such a silly goose thing. How dare you even suggest it? Because by even drawing further attention to the concept of the fake match, the fixed match, the worked match, the hippodrome, is to invite scrutiny to your work and your livelihood. The November 2nd Akron Daily Democrat reported that the betting opened with McLeod as the favorite by a slim margin. He was the champ after all. He had beaten Farmer Burns. He was the top guy. Champions almost always get the betting favorite, especially when they're on a good roll like he was. The November 4th, 1901 Rochester Democrat and Chronicle reported that Jenkins and Dan McLeod signed for a match in Cleveland on November 7th. $2,500 aside and a 75-25 box office split. Boxer Jim Corbin was announced as the referee, quote, a good deal of money is being wagered on the result. The odds slightly favor Jenkins. The November 6th Buffalo News claimed that, quote, the former fellow workmen of Tom Jenkins in the rolling mills of Newburgh have filed a request that they be allowed to swing their shifts so that they can witness the world's championship contest between Jenkins and Dan McLeod. Many of the men are determined to see the match and say that unless their request is complied with, they will refuse to report to work. It is also claimed that the mill workers pooled their paydays to bet a collective $5,000 on Jenkins, a real smart move if true, knowing the state of the wrestling business. So yeah, he's in his hometown. He's in a championship match in his hometown. All the boys from the steel mill that have knew him before, back when he was an amateur, who have been cheering him on this whole time, they're ready to just quit their jobs and tell the factory to go fuck itself if they're not able to go support their friend, their boy, their 
the one among them who made it, and putting a shitload of money down on it like the dumb fucking marks they are. Not necessarily their fault, it's the culture at the time, but that's a lot of money in 1901 to put down on a wrestling match. Jim Corbin seems to be out of the picture by the 7th. According to the Buffalo Courier, after hours of arguing, wrestler Charles Whitmer was selected as the referee. The match was wild, according to the Buffalo Morning Express the following day. The match was no holds barred and taking place on, quote, a specially prepared sawdust padded platform in the Central Armory building in front of 6,600 fans. The side bets were $2,500 and the winner would get 50% of the house. Tickets ranged from $1 to $3. The main event was underway just after 9 p.m. After four minutes of feeling out, Jenkins shot a double on McLeod and got him down. It was all action after that, with constant attacks from both men. It came to an end at the 36-30 mark when McLeod secured a half-Nelson and crotch hold and, quote, after lifting and smashing Jenkins three times, he got a flat fall. Dan arose amidst an ovation. Jenkins collapsed, lay flat on his back, and was helped to his feet. Between the falls, a lot of money changed hands. In the second, many fans expected Jenkins to be worn out and practically defenseless. But it was McLeod who seemed to have run out of gas, and Jenkins was the fresher of the two. Again, all-out action that ended with Jenkins pinning McLeod in 19 minutes. At 11.13 p.m., the third fall was underway. McLeod was getting the better of Jenkins, who reversed and managed to land a few Nelsons for control, and then pinned McLeod with a back hammerlock at the 22-minute mark. Jenkins was the new champion. So we have so many layers of pro wrestling magic at the time, some of it to this day, that made this such a seminal moment. You had Jenkins having his first title match in his hometown of Cleveland, guaranteeing box office and betting. You had the solid backing of the populace, the press, everything. Hell, the, his former ironworker buddies were almost refusing to go to work unless they could see this match. It was red hot. It was a moneymaker top to bottom. And he wins the championship. We now have him brought to the height of stardom. You know, we have a new box office sensation. You have this man who was American through and through. He was a handsome, muscular, mustachioed gentleman that looked good in the press. He was well-spoken. He had a scientific mind for wrestling as though nobody else at that level did. And they did something spectacular for when you're fixing fights. You had that first round, that first fall, be this grueling, grueling match that ends with Dan McLeod winning. And everybody's like, oh shit, Jenkins is now the one who's going to be losing. And like everybody's betting back and forth. And then you have people now betting against Jenkins, which is exactly what the house wants because the house knows how this is going to go, and Jenkins looked like shit. He looks like he's worn down to nothing. Everybody who's making their late bets is now putting it on McLeod. So, of course, boom, you now have the next two falls going towards Jenkins. You had McLeod looking exhausted from his first win, which, A, 
tells a great realistic story, and also kind of gives him a little bit of an out, a little bit of an excuse. The excuse of, I was tired because, you know what, I ate some bad shellfish on the way down here, or I couldn't find my security blanket, so I could not sleep well on the train to get here. That's my excuse under most circumstances. So it gives everybody what they want, what they need, what the sport needed at the time. So just top to bottom, it was a brilliant move. And Dan McLeod told the Buffalo Morning Express that he'd like a rematch with Jenkins outside of Cleveland, claiming the referee and rules weren't exactly in his favor. Quote, I am not yet satisfied that Jenkins is my superior. I would like to have another meeting with him. I said nothing about it to Tom or his manager, Tui, while in Cleveland, for it's always child's play to rustle about demanding another match after defeat. The article also addresses the rumor that, quote, after McLeod had shown the Clevelanders what he could do in the first fall, a proposition might have been submitted to him for the remaining falls, which would account for his falling off in aggressiveness in the last two bouts. McLeod was angry when first he heard the story, but later accepted it as the customary aftermatch of every important match. So, yeah, so again, you have the former champ going out there and saying, oh, you know, it, it would have been improper for me to immediately bring this up, but he had the hometown advantage, and the rules and the referee were from Cleveland. Everything was tilted in his favor. So, yeah, you know, he had an advantage that I personally did not, and therefore I deserve a rematch. And, of course, because it's such a crooked sport, the press was like, hey, after you were worn down, did anybody come and say, hey, man, why don't you have an easy night? Here's a couple extra bucks. But, of course, he denies ever even such a thing would happen in the sport, and if it did, he would never accept it. McLeod also spoke to the Buffalo Courier about the match, stating that if he matched Jenkins' weight, it would have been a different story. Quote, I tell you boys that 30 pounds don't look like much when you just say 30 pounds, said McLeod, but you make that amount up of bone, sinew, and muscle in the hole owned by a man of Jenkins' great strength and knowledge of wrestling, and it counts for a great deal. The Buffalo Courier lamented the lack of competition for Jenkins after defeating McLeod, say that he, quote, like the weeping Alexander, who after he had overcome Egypt and the nations beyond the barrier of the East, sighed because his renown could reach no further. His manager, George Toohey, claimed that Jenkins will step up his Greco-Roman training for mixed bouts since nobody can beat him at catch-as-catch-can. So, again, we have a new champ. We have him winning over McLeod with a serious weight disadvantage. So Jenkins weighed 30 pounds more than McLeod, which also gave McLeod the worked, reasonable excuse for losing. Because if you've ever grappled with somebody who has 30 pounds on you and you're both very athletic, it sucks. It's a much it's a much bigger advantage than a lot of people would think if they have not competed. That's why in so many sports the weight classes are so small. Because if you even get somebody 10 pounds heavier than you, you're in for a long night. Because if I at you know 210 pounds were to grapple with somebody 250 pounds who was not in great shape and a much different skill level, hey, I'm just gonna look really cool. But if I'm wrestling or doing whatever against somebody who weighs 
20, 30 pounds heavier than me. They're in great shape and knew what they were doing. Well, even if we took away the size difference and you know we were equal skills, it doesn't matter. That 30 pounds of weight and muscle on top of you, struggling against it, it makes all the difference in the world. So when you apply that to a worked wrestling situation, well, guess what? Now you don't look so bad losing because, hey, what was I supposed to do? He was the hometown hero. He had the hometown referee and he outweighs me by 30 pounds. What chance did I have in this very legitimate sport? And then you have the Alexander the Great reference, so, which in addition to just being a lover of ancient history, so I always love a good Alexander the Great metaphor. This was a time where there weren't a lot of huge stars. You know, you looked at various periods, like when we talked about wrestling in the 1920s, where you had so many top guys that you'd have people who were championship material in any other era who could never wore the title. You would have times like the 1880s, where you would have Muldoon and Evan Lewis, and you'd have guys like Matsuda. So you'd have, like, you know, across the nation, you would have... Uh, like enough good competition and less connection through telegraph and newspapers that if you had like five or six top guys, you could pretty much take it coast to coast making good money off of it. You could match up Muldoon with Whistler, Whistler with Bauer, Bauer with Matsuda, so on so forth. And then you'd have, again, you'd have times like the 1920s or times like the current picture in both WWE and AEW where you have so many top guys that people's favorites don't even appear on TV because this scene is so crowded. But then you have times like this, where you had McLeod, you had Jenkins, you'd have the touring uh, Europeans and Ottomans, but you'd have that older generation, the Ernst Robers, the Farmer Burnses, who were kind of yesterday's news. They were kind of on the backslide of their careers to a certain extent couldn't draw the money, weren't seen as the hot competitors against the current champs, despite what they themselves would tell you. So you, and then you'd have the newer generation of guys like Frank Gotch, who was just breaking into the business, who really was just seen as an up and comer, not the future legend that we all know he would be. You'd have guys like Hackenschmidt who had yet to come to America. So it was once again, just kind of a weird kind of dead spot in the sport where the title had to be carried by Tom Jenkins, by Dan McLeod, and rivalries were, I'm sure every booker was trying to find the next big thing, the next guy to kind of go up against the guy, the man to beat the man. But at the time it was like, cool, well we've got McLeod and we've got Jenkins and we've got whatever Ottoman or Frenchman is like floating through at the time. Let's maximize what we have. So the big idea at that time, which was a stroke of genius that pumped new life into the wrestling world, was putting the title on Jenkins, but giving McLeod every reasonable excuse for losing to keep him intact so he can keep moving forward and make the rivalry mean something. And that rivalry is going to be a big part of the next episode because we are running out of time here today. We're gonna leave it here with Jenkins as the new champion. He is the catch as catch can king. He is the American title holder, whatever way you wanna to refer to him. King shit a fuck mountain. We'll go with that. He is king shit a fuck mountain for now. He is celebrating in Cleveland, 
but he's got a target on his back now because every champion does. And we'll explore that next time. So thank you so much for going on this journey with me. Thank you for listening. I hope you learned something. I hope you maybe even had a giggle at my wry wit. And I also hope that you follow me on Twitter. I hope you follow the Facebook page and the Instagram because I have an insane amount of old photos and articles and headlines to reference with this episode that I'll be posting and hopefully you appreciate those and enjoy looking at those just like I do. So we'll be back next time with part three of our look at the life and times and career of Tom Jenkins. But for now, I'm Nick Gossert. I'll talk to you next time. Thank <laughs> you.